my big aha was, hey, here in Silicon Valley, the technology is the business. Every once in a while in the market, there's like a tidal wave. And if you can build a good surfboard and surf on that wave, you can often build a pretty good business. It takes you a while to build a company. You want to sort of build for what the market's going to need in the future, not necessarily what they need right now. How do you really unlock growth? You got to find that hotspot that has urgency. I often get asked, like, how do you create urgency? And if you're asking that question, you're already half in trouble. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, I sit down with Bob Tinker, co-founder of MobileIron, a company that he served as CEO of from founding through IPO before stepping down in 2016. Bob recently co-authored a book called Survival to Thrival, in which he lays out the foundations for building and growing an enterprise software company. We focus on several of the frameworks that Bob developed for building a go-to-market playbook, including how to determine your best go-to-market approach and how to continuously evolve your company in a fast-changing market. We also discuss the importance of customer urgency and playing to your wow features. I think anyone building a modern enterprise software company is really going to appreciate this episode. All right, Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Grant, thanks for having me. Cool, so let's just dive right in. Tell us a little bit about your background. I'm a three-time entrepreneur, originally an engineer, and my first job out of college was an IT guy at a bank. So I used to be on the customer side and kind of accidentally ended up in sales when I was doing customer support for some large accounts and the account rep left the bank. I ended up running sales for some large accounts. And I realized that there was sort of a two-class system in business where there were sort of the business people and technology people. It's a little bit less so now, but definitely the case in sort of the 90s in banking. And frankly, that was frustrating (laughs) because I like technology, I like business. So I moved out to the Bay Area to go to business school. And uh, that was sort of the thesis to try and be able to participate in both sides. But then I realized it really wasn't going to change things. My big aha was hey, here in Silicon Valley, the technology is the business. So that was sort of the beginning of my entrepreneurial career. And then uh, fast forward, three different startups. First one, Voice over IP company. Frankly, uh, that one failed. Uh, It was too early. And was that like a consumer company or was that an enterprise? No, it was an enterprise Voice over IP in 1998. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was just one of those things where it was too early. And... uh, in 2002. So just too early from a from the technology perspective? Or? Technology, market, and actually urgency, right? Like think about like 1998, 2000, like voice over IP was cool, but like why would anybody change? Like there wasn't sort of a compelling event for somebody to rip out their existing voice infrastructure and put in voice over IP. It was one of those things that happened slowly over the course of a 20-year period, but that's a rough place to be a startup. 
Yeah, yeah, the twenty-year start. The twenty-year sales yeah. cycle. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a rough world. And my second company was an enterprise Wi-Fi company called Airspace, and uh, I was the first business guy there. So I wasn't one of the founders, but I was the first business guy there, and uh, that was a great experience. We went from like zero to eighty million over four years. And what did, what did you guys do? You say enterprise Wi-Fi. Enterprise Wi-Fi. Okay. So if you remember back two thousand two, the Centrino chipset first showed up in laptops, and all of a sudden people started trying to use Wi-Fi at work. And the first answer was, let me go to Fry's and get some consumer access points and sprinkle them around the office. And then all of a sudden, large companies were like, uh-oh, we need to figure out how to have Wi-Fi for everyone. And so we sold enterprise Wi-Fi infrastructure. Cisco bought us for $450 million in 2005, and we became the Cisco Wireless Business Unit. So you would like go into large enterprises and physically install the routers and the access points and all that. Yeah. So the uh, the big innovation was how do you move from sort of standalone access points to thinking about Wi-Fi as a system. So we had enterprise Wi-Fi access points, but they were all centrally controlled by basically a wireless controller. So we adopted sort of the cellular architecture model for enterprise Wi-Fi. Oh, cool. And that turned out to be both good timing in terms of market urgency, because now Wi-Fi was in laptops and customers needed to do something about it, and we had a solution to do that. And we grew from zero to 80 million over four years. And uh, that was a great growth experience for us. Well, it kind of relates to what you end up doing next, right? Right. Another like transition, tidal wave, urgency that is sort of forced by a macro shift in the market. You know, the way you can sort of picture it is like every once in a while in the market, there's like a tidal wave, or it doesn't even have to be a tidal wave, just a wave. And if you can build a good surfboard and surf on that wave, you can often build a pretty good business. And for airspace, the wave was Wi-Fi showing up at work. Like Wi-Fi ready devices, and then people like needed Wi-Fi infrastructure to attach it to. Right. Because it's like before that, everything was landline and hardwired, and you like sat at a desk and you plugged in, and that's how you got the internet. Yep. And now all of a sudden, laptops had Wi Fi, and people wanted to just work wherever they were. And people were probably like just plugging uh, a router on top of their like, their, their endpoint. Which was a huge yeah. security issue, exactly. actually, because people were just plugging in consumer access points under their desk. Right. Using right. their <laughs> one connection and to, to make, it, uh, make it a Wi Fi so they could walk around. With yeah, their... they were very popular. Yeah. Except for with the security team. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And uh, but that's a great point that it was a, a transition or a wave in the market that if you build a good product to surf on that you can build a good business. And, and, and then, interestingly, also just driven by the changing employee needs that were like they were bringing in technology that they wanted to use and made their lives better. You know, because they didn't have to like plug in at every meeting and they could like walk around and show people stuff. So that that makes a lot of end sense. End user driven demand. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you could sort of think about any time a new type of client or application or end user use case shows up at work, often the back end infrastructure has to figure out how to respond. Mm, yeah, it's a great point. My last company in 2008 was a mobile security company called Mobile Iron, and I was the co founder and CEO of that. We built that from sort of three people on a whiteboard in 2008 to when I stepped aside in 2016. We were $160 million a year in revenue, 12,000 enterprise customers, public on NASDAQ, and 1,000 employees. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a pretty big company. Yeah, no, really proud of that. Sort of built an industry, created a new category, and uh, built a standalone business that's uh, still thriving. That's great. And so now you're sort of spending your time doing, like, tele- helping people understand 
the challenges around building enterprise software companies? Yeah, so what I've been doing over the last year is a combination of seed investing and uh, writing books on B2B entrepreneurship and working on a new project now where me and another colleague are actually going to be buying small SaaS companies. Oh, cool. So you, you wrote a book called Survival Thrival, right? Um, which I've read most of. But I have seen you talk, watch a bunch of other things. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into some of these topics that you love to you bring up there. Uh, I think you know that for anyone listening, there's just go get the book. It's amazing. It has a bunch of frameworks and ways to visualize the stuff we'll talk about. So let's dive in. You know, where should we start here? You know, looking back through my experience at Airspace and Mobile Iron, one of the things that I found kind of frustrating was that I think we spend so much time trying to build a product that customers want that often we don't think through what's the missing link between winning your first 10 customers and winning your next 1,000 customers. And it's that building of a go-to-market that as a first-time CEO, product-oriented CEO, frankly, I kind of struggled with and had to learn along the way. And I don't think I'm alone in that I think a lot of entrepreneurs and first-time CEOs, particularly product-centric CEOs, Figuring out how to build a repeatable go-to-market to unlock growth is not necessarily intuitive. Yeah, it's quite hard. You know, I think, you know, from my perspective, you have an idea when you're starting. You know what you want to build the first time. You start to show it to people, and then you start to get feedback, right? Right, and you're iterating and iterating on the product. And I think you know we generally have a pretty good handle on what product market fit. Is sure right. You know, how do you get your first 10, 15, 20 paying reference customers that say good things about your product? And you know, that iterative process, I think, feels somewhat natural to a product centric CEO. And you know, for me at Mobile Iron in 2008, you know, we spent the first six months talking to customers before we wrote a line of code or raised a dollar venture capital. And you know, we weren't sure what the technology would be, but we wanted to make sure we really understood what the problem was Hmm. that customers were going to go solve. And then we sort of backed into, okay, what's the technology solution we need to be able to go solve that? So let's let's dig in there a little bit. Did you have a space in mind? Did you have an initial product thesis? Yeah, so remember the, we talked about sort of the wave phenomena? Yeah, right. Like 2008, it was the very beginning of smartphones. iPhone, had just been launched, but it was consumer-oriented. It was a BlackBerry, Symbian, Windows phone world, right? Sort of laugh about that now. But you could start to see people bring them into work and be like, man, I want this. Mm. Like, you could just feel it. You could see it in people's eyes. And even though it was kind of messy and clunky and didn't always work very well, people were like, yeah, I want this. And as a side effect of one of my jobs at Cisco, I got to work with the Cisco IT team in 2007 when we rolled out 25,000 Palm Trios. And it was a mess. It was wow. really hard on IT. Like they were bleeding from the eyeballs. How many? 25,000 Palm Trios. It was probably wow. the largest smartphone deployment in the world at the time. That's amazing. And IT was dying. But users were still like, gimme, 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 gimme. And I was like, okay, there's something there. Yeah. <laughs> right? Somebody should solve that problem. And when AJ and Suresh, who were my co-founders, sort of showed me what they were thinking about, like, hey, let's go see if we can figure out how to help smartphones get used at work, that was sort of as specific as we got sure. in okay. terms of the space. And then that's where spending time talking to customers for six months to really understand what the problems were, what their challenges would be, and roll the clock forward 12, 18 months and 
try and do a little future prediction because mm. it takes you a while to build a company. You want to sort of build for what the market's going to need in the future, not necessarily what they need right now. Yeah, okay. And so how did you get in the door with these folks to even have those conversations? Are these folks you met That's from- a great question. And one of the things I learned and I think we learned with sort of that early customer research is that a lot of potential customers are willing to be helpful. Like if you just say, hey, look, we're thinking about building a company. We've got this idea about a general space. We'd love some feedback, love some advice. People love to give feedback and love to give advice. And I don't know we probably had 70 or 80 wow. customer meetings and getting feedback and advice. And you know, some of it was just finding people through our network and calling them. Our seed investor was helpful introducing us to customers. Mm. Customers from our previous companies, we'd sort of ask them who the person was who was working on it. But if you just ask people like, hey, look, we're working on an idea. We'd love some advice. We'd love some input. You'd be surprised. A lot of people are willing to sort of help. And uh, interestingly, those 80 sort of customer meetings eventually turned into something we called teaching customers. There's like about 40 of them where, you know, when you sort of meet with a potential customer and you get advice where you're like, hey, they seem to sort of understand the problem. And you're just sort of intuitively like they seem to get it. You start to collect them, hmm. and they become sort of these customers that give you feedback, not just once, but sure. multiple times. So they become what we call teaching customers. And then over time, if you sort of picture a funnel, those forty teaching customers, you know, some of them fell off the list, but then like fifteen of them became our alpha customers, and then seven of them became our betas, and then five became our paying reference customers. So in many ways, in addition to really figuring out what we were going to go build. A lot of them ended up becoming sort of the pipeline for future alphas and betas. Sure, and so, so the interesting part there, it's just even how you got to them, it, it feels like you know your relationships from airspace were, were valuable, right? Previous so, companies, sometimes just going to conferences and walking around talking to people, cold calling. Like, okay, it was so you, a lot of did, oh yeah, you did some cold calling. Oh too yeah, in there. Absolutely. okay, great, yeah. But you had some credibility, so people would at least think like, okay, these guys have. They know a little bit about enterprise software and doing, you know, sort of. Yeah, IT probably stuff, on the margin. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, other than our previous customers, I'm not sure the other people knew who we were. Okay. So were at some level, there. it was a karmic deposit to the universe that they were just willing to take a phone call and be willing to help. Yeah, I love that. And so, would you go meet them in person? Do a phone call remote? What's oh, it was a, a mix of them. Okay. Um, I'd bet it was probably fifty percent phone call, fifty percent face to face. But over time, what happened was you start to feel the customers and prospects are willing to sort of keep giving you feedback and advice over time. And so your initial thesis was around mobile and that there was you could help secure these devices. It was just actually it was more general that it's like, hey, these things are coming into the office and people are going to need to use them at work. How can we help? Like what are the problems that the enterprise and IT is going to have as that happens? Part of it was a security problem. Part of it was a management problem. Part of it was, you know, we started to hear about like new things, like this idea that people wanted to bring their personal smartphones to work. Remember, BYOD had not been really invented at this time. Oh, right? so this is okay. This is pre BYOD. Like, the, if you were really important, you got a BlackBerry at work, right? So, BlackBerry was a pager that just turned into a phone in two thousand eight. So, like, you got to sort of rewind the time machine here. <laughs> so you were thinking, how do we not like Palm Trio, ha, ha, BlackBerry, Symbian days? But, but like, uh, but from IT out, like, how do we distribute 
like you know everything. Phones. What were the problems that enterprises were going to have as these things start to show up? Or but initially, your thought was like that the IT teams would distribute them. Yeah, oh yeah, because like, that's the way it was always done before. Right. Okay. And then we started to hear about things. Well, people had this personal phone. They, why can't I use this at work? It's like, well, because that's not allowed, or you got to keep your data separate, or huh, we hadn't really thought about that before. <laughs> okay. So that so the, I mean because ultimately that's what Mobile Iron really became, right? It was like multi OS and BYOD. It was really how do you say yes to mobile and secure and manage it. Right, because very few companies actually like give out a give they don't give you now, a company issued phone anymore, right? No, but you rewind you know from 2008 to 2012, you know, probably 75% of the devices inside companies were company issued. I mean, oh, we yeah. sort of look at that now and it's sort of laughable. Right. But that was the way it was. And you know, interestingly, that pattern of hey, people are trying to bring phones to work, and oh wait, that means there's going to be a mixture of personal data and work data on there. Oh, that's going to be another problem that's going to need to be solved. So, like as you start to spend time with customers and figuring out what these challenges are going to be, you can start to reverse into, you know, what what's the product you want to build, what problems do you want to solve, and uh, you know, a great example of that is that. We invented a concept called selective wipe, which is like, hey, if you have a BYOD device, you want to pull out your work content because you leave the company, but leave your pictures and music alone. Everybody kind of takes it for granted now that that's the way it worked. Yeah, that was not the case in 2010, and so we invented that concept, which is now just part of the way it's done. That's cool. Yeah, so that came from customer meetings and understanding what these challenges were and figuring out a problem to solve. Okay, so then when like did it become really apparent that? That was the problem that you needed to solve, or were there like you know? Oh, there was so you know in the early days as you're starting to do your customer research and figuring out your problems, then you're like, all right, we're going to go build a product, right? And yeah. you start iterating on it's going to do this. Customer gives you feedback. Let's add that and see if they're interested. Oh, if they're interested. Oh, they're not interested. You start getting these like this iteration and feedback about what people are interested and not interested in and why they want to keep talking to you, why they don't want to keep talking to right. you. Right? So you're getting all these data points. And what's kind of confusing at the time is that you have this sort of bullseye that you think you know. right? You're like, okay, I think I, like 75% know. What we ended up finding is that we needed to cast a slightly wider net from what we thought our bullseye was from talking to customers and explore things a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right or a little bit up or a little bit down because you're really looking for sort of hot spots where you start to see multiple customers with the same problem looking for the same solution. And the confusing part is we actually saw like two or three different clusters mm. of where we were seeing customer interest from. And if you sort of imagine sort of a bullseye with sort of a Slightly wider net around it, you get like these three hotspots, and that was fortunate that we had like three hotspots, right? Because yeah, you know, sometimes you get zero. Sure, <laughs> right. I'll tell you what it felt like, which is, in some ways, sort of exploring these adjacencies at the time kind of felt like heresy. Hmm. It felt like we were kind of betraying our founding idea. They were like, "Hey, this is what we're going to go build, and this is what we're going to go do based on customer feedback." And you like rallied the team around this. Yeah, money, and it's and like, like, "Oh, wait yeah, a minute, we're going to sort of test this thing over here." Wait a minute, that's not exactly what we said we yeah. were going to do. It feels like heresy. And you know, this one, I'll give you the very specific example was at this time the mobile world was all BlackBerry, Symbian, and Windows Phone. Uh, isn't it still <laughs> somewhere in the world? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in Ottawa, Canada. Yeah. And the iPhone had just come out. At that point, it was just a consumer device. Nobody was using it at work. 
But we started to see some customers who were like, man, we'd love to try and figure out how to use iPhone at work. But if you looked at market data, market data was like, oh, it's all Symbian BlackBerry Windows Phone. iPhone's really not an enterprise. They don't pay any attention to that. So if we'd actually been analytical about it, we would have ignored it. Mm. But we just started hearing customer feedback that they were like struggling with it. They're like, dude, can you help me with iPhone? Is this like right after the iPhone launch? Like instantly? Yeah, or like is it like months? Okay, yeah, so maybe like, the iPhone 3G comes out and it's like starts to really. Oh, it was way before that. Oh, even before that. Yeah, okay, it was great. Wow. That, yeah. So we started doing some experiments. Like we actually built our first prototype for our iPhone management security product on like a couple post it notes. I still have it somewhere actually. And it was sort of a controversy at the time about should we spend engineering resources to go prototype this thing and go test this adjacency? Right. And, and how uh, big was the company? How many people at this point? 20. Okay. So 20 people, a pretty good size of people. You're moving around saying, hey, we got this really interesting thing over here. We might want to go test. Yeah. And, you know, because we were seeing traction in some of the other parts of the market, we we're like, oh, let's go test this adjacency. Yeah. It feels like a distraction, right? You can exactly. sort of translate adjacency into distraction. Yeah. You got to focus, right? You got to focus. <laughs> focus, focus, focus. Yeah. But the reality is, if you focus, focus, focus and pick the wrong thing, mm. you're dead. Great point. Right. And more often than not, that the hot spot, that actually helps you unlock growth is a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, or a little bit up and a little bit down. So you have to sort of cast a slightly wider net. And it's hard at the time because you got limited resources, limited time, you want to focus. And it frankly feels kind of like heresy because you kind of feel like you're betraying your founding idea a little bit. But yeah, I think if you talk to most founders that have built successful companies and like really pull apart the origin story, the success was unlocked by something that wasn't quite exactly what they thought it was going to be in the beginning. And that's normal, and that's yeah. good. But you have to give yourself just enough rope to find it. And so for you, that was just, hey, we have all these iPhones. Help me with this iPhone problem. And so you started building uh, like features around that? Like, like, yeah, so that how the... do you solve the problem for managing and securing deploying iPhones in the enterprise? Okay. right. And for... actually, Apple hadn't figured it out at the time. And was this also from like a central IT out, not central from a BI, IT out BYOD yeah. still at that point? It's yeah, it still, wasn't even BYOD at oh, that they, point. It's like okay, we're a cool company. We want to give our employees iPhones instead of Blackberries. How do we yep. do that? Because like the CEO wants an iPhone, they don't want to have a Blackberry. So here's, anymore. that's a great example of how like so finding urgency. One of our early deals was with a large biotech company, and they had no business buying a mobile management security product from a little company of thirty people. Right? Like, why would they buy from us? Right. But the problem they were like, their exec team was beating the snot out of the IT team, basically said, look, figure out how to let us use iPhones or you're fired. And the IT team was like, okay, we'll go figure that out. That's, that's <laughs> urgency. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, that urgency is what gave permission to these buyers to make a bet on a small little company with very few customers that might die someday. Right? You have to kind of put yourself in the position of your customers. In the early days, like, you know, our very first customer was a company called Windsor Foods. If you turn over a Costco burrito, like it's made by Windsor Foods. Oh, okay. Um, and Stefan was the director of IT at Windsor Foods. And like our first deal was like $6,000. Yeah. Right? But imagine the conversation Stefan had with his boss. Hey, I got to go buy this management security product from this company called Mobile Iron for Mobility. And my boss says, great, tell me about them. Well, they're 25 people. Great, who other customers have you had? Oh, uh, we're the first. Are they going to even be around? I don't know. 
right? I mean, put yeah. some of the shoes and stuff on, right? He had to really stick out his neck. Yeah. To being bet first on is us. tough. Yeah. Yeah, and even like the first five, six, seven, eight, yeah. they're all making the same bet. But you you did give him risk adjusted pricing, right? Yeah. We, at that point, it was really just about. Yeah, just pay us something. That's a good deal, right? Yeah, it was you a know. great deal. Yeah. And yeah, you just want customers using it and being able to say good things. Sure. You know, product market fit is how do you get those first 10, 15, 20 customers that are willing to use your product, say good things, and pay you some money. Yep. Right. That's really the test. And um, but one of the hard things at that point in time, and I think a lot of early stage companies go through this. You remember the sort of the multiple hotspots I'd sort of talked about? We felt these couple clusters that eventually you have to pick one. Mm. So we probably had 15, 20 customers, and they were sort of spread across sort of the iPhone hotspot cluster. We had some people doing like Symbian and BlackBerry, and we actually had this other application to help people sort of manage costs on mobile devices because that was a big issue at the time. Okay. Like manage like the minutes or data or well, something? Well, it was like, yeah, it? like international roaming and surprise roaming, okay. plan overages. Like it was a huge deal in 2008, 2009, yeah. right? And so... You know, listening to customers, you're trying to solve their problems, and we heard a lot of customers articulating that problem, and we won some customers for that mm. part of the product. Well, if you imagine us sort of having these three clusters of customers that had three different types of characteristics, we eventually had to pick one to go focus on, and as a result, we had to prune and stop doing that product that those other customers had bought, and that was brutal, yeah. right? Here's this company, PPDI, a big company in North Carolina that basically bought this product from us. They made a bet. They did the Stefan thing where they went to their boss and said, hey, I'm going to buy this product from this company you've never heard of that's going to help us. And you like shook their hand. We shook you, their hand, yeah. took their money, right. gave them the product, and then we had to call them back like three or four months later and be like, hey, we're end of lifeing that product. Oh, man. Oh, it's brutal. Yeah. But you have to. Like, you have to prune these things. Once you find your hotspot, focus on that, build your go to market on that, build your repeatability on that. These other things, like, it'll hold you back, it'll get in the way, but you're kind of screwing some customers as a result. Man, that's painful. And you want to be customer centric, and these people bet on you, and you're stranding them. And so I flew to North Carolina, wanted to go meet the customer. I'm like, all right, look. Uh, really sorry to tell you, we're going to be end of lifing this. Oh, you flew there to end. I flew there, and I actually walked in with a check and gave them their money back. Wow, which was a lot of money at the time for yeah. us. <laughs> like we debooked it, and I told them why. I said, "Look, this is a valid problem, but we're going to be focused on another problem." And frankly, we could sort of maybe ham and egg it and try and keep the product alive that you bought from us, but we're just not going to do a very good job of it, and. You're going to end up regretting it. We're going to end up regretting it. So we might as well just like not do it, and gave them their money back. Now the interesting sort of epilogue to that story is uh, like two years later, they became a customer on our mainline product. Okay, nice. <laughs> so eventually, the hotspot that other customers we had seen, PPDI had as well. So that was sort of a nice epilogue to that story. Yeah, and and you didn't burn the bridge so much that they weren't willing to work with you in the future. So you, I mean, guessing flying there, handing them a check, like those are all like, I mean, that's a lot. That's, can I say, the hardest part is the human part, right? Like they trusted yeah. you to do this thing. And yeah. So you're and, going back. Yeah. And internally, like your sales team's like, wait a minute, we're not going to sell this anymore. We got customers we could sell this to. Yeah. Right. And you're an early stage CEO going, man, I'm just trying to win some customers to get some revenue. And I'm, gotta get that ARR up. I'm you like know? saying no to that. Yeah. Like it's super counterintuitive, really painful at the time. But, you know, getting to sort of how do you really unlock growth? You got to find that hotspot that has urgency 
I often get asked, like, how do you create urgency? And in my head, the little voice says, if you're asking that question, you're already half in trouble. Sure. Because it's much better to find urgency that's already there. If you're in a situation where you have to create urgency, it's doable. You can do it. It's not a fool's errand. But man, it's way better if you can actually just find urgency and capitalize on it. Yeah, it's hard to create urgency. I mean, I've had two companies, replicated included, where urgency is always a problem, right? And you, like, how do we get these folks to really get how much this is going to help them now? And so you end up trying to do things and calculate ROI and show them, you know, better, like, try to create metrics around it. But ultimately, if they don't have the urgency to do it right now, yep, you know, it's hard to get them. Why buy now versus six months from now? Right. You know, doing nothing is often your biggest competitor. Yeah. And being able to find urgency is like you're going to get fired if you can't get well, me an iPhone, right? Like right. That's, and that that's, we found that's urgency. urgency. That's huge. And that urgency. was a big deal. And like yeah. often you see these big waves that are sort of creating transitions in markets. For us, it was sort of the transition to mobility. Uh oh, what do I do about iPhone? Uh oh, what do I do about BYOD? Uh oh, what do I do about apps? Like there were sort of these waves of change that created urgency inside customers. And I think. You know, that happens all around sort of enterprise software. There's waves of change that sort of force or create problems where people go, oh crap, I got to do something. Yeah. And if you can find one of those hotspots that has urgency, you know, that's one of the key ingredients to really being able to unlock growth. Because you can have a great product, you can have a great go-to-market playbook, but if there's no urgency, you're just not going to unlock growth. It's yeah. going to be a slog. So, you have these frameworks for company building and sort of you know, enterprise software creation. The benefit of hindsight. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. 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 You, you approached everything you did at Mobile Iron with the, you knew all this ahead of time. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. No. Oh, man. The yeah. amount of like battle scars on my back is uh, uh, numerous. Yeah, but, these uh, are hard won frameworks that you, that you yeah, have. Yeah, stuff created. I wish I had kind of known. <laughs> right. Like, this is the if I could write myself a letter sitting on my desk 10 years ago, what would I tell myself? This would be one of them. But that, Urgency, you know, you first you have like idea creation, you have product yeah, market. So Where do you let me put give urgency you the context in that? On this. So, yeah. like, the real struggles in enterprise software and building B2B SaaS companies is a lot of times you can get to product market fit. Like, you can really ham and egg your way to your first 10, 15, 20 customers. And then you're like, okay, great, I've got product market fit, time to grow. Woo, let's go hire a bunch of salespeople, invest in marketing. And you wake up six months later and you went from 20 customers to like 22 or 24 or 25 and your burn rate went up and everybody's looking around going, uh-oh, <laughs> scary. And there's a ton of companies that get the product market fit but never unlock growth. The reason is that there's, I think in my mind, sort of a missing link between those two. That you know, when you look at all the B2B software companies that really unlock growth, you know, they found something in between product market fit and growth. And the funny thing is it didn't really have a name, which is in and of itself kind of right. interesting, right? Yeah. So we coined the term go-to-market fit. Which I think is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> which you know, happens sort of on the tail end of product market fit, which is how do you find and win customers over and over and over and over and over again with some level of urgency. Right. Right. And it's like it sounds simple, but it's hard to do. So yeah, this concept of go-to-market fit I found really helpful. And if you look through the rearview mirror at Mobile Iron, we nailed go-to-market fit. And sort of what was that? It was number one, the found urgency, which answers the question like why now and not six months from now. And for us, it was 
the dude helped me with iPhone. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And it was, help me not get fired. <laughs> right. My um, CEO wants an iPhone. Yeah. Like, it's funny. I think, you know, if I was listening to this now, I would be kind of laughing. Well, of course, that's obvious now. But, like, in 2009, that was not that obvious. Sure. The second thing is, what's your go-to-market model? Like, how do you sell? Do you hire salespeople and go up the middle? Do you... Do you know online evals and they've inside sales, or are you sort of a zero touch sales model like a Twilio or SendGrid? Like, what's what is your sales model? I think you got to sort of pick one, and then the third one is having a repeatable go to market playbook, which is how do you just find and win customers over and over again from the first time you touch them to when you win them and make them successful. And when you have those three things, you've got urgency, you've got your go to market model picked, and you've got a playbook you can do over and over and over again. That's when companies unlock growth, mm. and I think you know just being able to have sort of a framework around it that give people a way to sort of think about crossing, you know, solving this missing link between product market fit and growth, like, is helpful. I don't know, maybe it'd be useful to sort of touch on this sort of how do you even figure out what your go to market looks like? Yes, I've been doing it. You have these great frameworks for each of these, right? Because most people think about like how do I want to sell this thing and. They don't really know how to think about it, and I, and I think you have a really great way. Yeah, I, you know, when I was going through this in 2009, I found this whole discussion super confusing. Right? It was like, well, big ticket, small ticket, complicated product, simple product, sell through the channel, not through the sell channel. Ah, uh. right. Is it over? <laughs> right, is it, what's your ACV? Confusing. Is it over 50k? Is it you know? What, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, ah, <laughs> like it was super confusing. Yeah. And the way I think about it now is sort of the benefit of hindsight. If you sort of think about a slider. You know, on the left-hand side, you have sort of heavy touch sales, which is sort of classic up the middle enterprise selling, where you got sales teams talking to customers. In the middle of the slider, you got what I call like marketing-led sales model, which is like you know, you do digital demand generation, you drive customers to your website, you may get them to an online eval, you gather some metrics, and then like inside sales picks up the phone, starts calling them, then closes. But there's a human sort of picks up the ball about halfway through. Sure. And then on the far right. You've got sort of product-led zero-touch sales, like what a Twilio or SendGrid does, where there's no salespeople. It's almost self-service. And you know, how do you sort of figure out where on that spectrum you should be? Yeah, I think this is the question. It's like everyone kind of understands that those are like different models, right? But like, how? How where, do you know? Yeah, how do you know which one you well, are? Well, the first thing is, I've seen a lot of companies get bum steers from their investors on this because they'll be like. Go do frictionless zero touch sales because that's sort of in vogue or in style right now. And venture capitalists love it because you don't have to spend money on sales, right? So it is very efficient, like great. The trick is there is no one right sales and go to market model. There's only what's the right one for you and your product and your customers. And you have to pick whatever the right one is for you. It's okay to experiment with different ones and have a thesis about what it is. But in order for you to unlock growth, you really have to pick one. Because I don't think small companies can sort of run multiple go-to-markets at the same time and really unlock growth. You really get to pick one. So how do you sort of figure out where on the spectrum you live? And there's a couple things that helped me. One was, there's a great article Mark Leslie, who's the CEO at Veritas, now a professor at Stanford, wrote called Leslie's Compass. It's up on LinkedIn. You can look at it. Sort of a good article about sort of how to think about this. You know, I actually found... Interestingly, what simplified it for me is it all comes down to one question. And what's that question? How does the customer decide to buy? It's not how do they physically buy, not the logistics of buying, not the characteristics of buying. It's actually what is the cognitive process 
going on inside that customer for them to go from I'm not buying to I'm buying. And let me explain this for a sec because uh, think about the times where you've been a customer buying a product from a vendor, right? Like you went through a cognitive process from the first time you figured out your need to what you're going to pick. Like every purchasing decision goes through that same thing. So as you're winning your early deals and losing early deals, like you tend to pay attention to why you lost, why you won. At the same time, pay attention to how your customer actually made the decision to buy. Because if you think about that spectrum I talked about earlier, if the buyer and decider are the same person, you can reach them over digital marketing and your product's relatively well understood, you can do zero-touch sales. You should be able to try that. But if the buyer and decider are two different people, like the VP of marketing and the CEO, like, for example, like look at Marketo or something mm-hmm. like that, right? How did Mobile Iron decide to buy Marketo when we bought Marketo? Well, my VP of marketing said, hey, I want to buy this, came to me, the CEO, and said, will you approve it? We talked about it for a little while, and I said yes, right? So the buyer and decider were two different people, but they're kind of like right next to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, that one sort of is in the middle of the spectrum. You got two people, buyer and decider, kind of right next to each other. You can do marketing-led sales. If the buying decision is more of a committee, where the cognitive process of making a decision to buy involves like five or six different people, like you're probably going to need like heavy touch sales because part of sales job is actually coordinating that decision inside the company. Right? So that's sort of what really simplified this problem for me is like how does your customer decide mm-hmm. to buy? Like what's the cognitive process? One person, buyer and decider, two people sitting right next to each other, or is it a group of people? <laughs> And you know, for us at Mobile Iron, like when we were selling large enterprise, it was the committee decision, right? There's like five or six different people involved, so we couldn't do zero touch sales if our life depended on it. Yes. Yeah, so, so that was going to be my next question: Is do you think that there are any levers that a company can pull to move in one direction more than the other? Obviously, like probably price. You know, if you make it really expensive. Well, it's interesting. Like people sort of say, "Oh, if it's a big ticket, right?" Like, of course. Well. The reason why high prices tend to lead to committee sales is the way companies buy. If it's a big purchase process, more people are involved. Right? If it's smaller, less people are involved. Right. So price is more of a symptom of the decision. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you have a product that is low priced but has a committee decision, that's yeah. probably going to be a really tough sales model. Right. <laughs> so it's interesting to you know think you about this. You can have high right? priced products that are relatively easy decisions. Like if you find those, like that's great. Sure. But I mean, do you think that? Are there other levers around? Okay, is it cross-functional? Like, you know, what what starts to make the buyer and decider a different person? Is it company size? Like, what are some of the other levers if you want to try to move it in terms of? Oh, we want to we want to start to go more uh, enterprise. We want to start to go more, you know, self-serve. Are a lot of it has to do with the tweak? type of product and the problem you're solving. Okay, right. Like, if you look at the low friction sales models, they tend to be. Like you're selling to like an engineer in DevOps, mm-hmm. or you're selling to like the marketing manager, and they can just sort of decide and do it. So if you're solving a relatively narrow problem that has sort of a small audience, that tends to lean there if it's a relatively well understood product. If your product is like a new product that people don't really understand, or it's a new concept that you have to explain, sure, like. That's just the case, like in some products, like it's a new thing. That's part of why you're innovating. Cate- like a new category company. creation, right? Yeah, yeah. like yeah. if you're doing category creation, like I don't know, I'm sure maybe somebody could find an example of a low friction sales model for a new category, but yeah, I'm kind of skeptical. Sure. So you know, the simpler the product, 
the simpler the buying decision, the lower the price, the narrower the audience, the more you sort of go to the zero touch side. But you know what? If you're solving a hard problem that involves a bunch of different people and you're being part of transforming something inside a company, sometimes it's just going to be a heavier weight sales process, and that's okay. Sure. And I think the the interesting piece here is like, you know, the framework is not okay. What, what leverage going to pull? It's like okay, this will give you the insight. Look at the decision right. process. I mean, you can for change buying. your product and change the problem you're solving because you want to steer it a certain direction. Right. Now you have to validate that that's actually going to work. Sure. But yeah, you can steer it. But generally, it's like people need to kind of know they have a product. You have to be intellectually the, honest about yeah. what's actually happening in the market when people buy your product, right? And if you if you kind of go through this exercise and think about like what is the cognitive process for how they decide, then you'll you'll get an answer, right? Right. And, and that answer, you can lean into it if you want to keep your exact you same can product. Test right? different things, right? right? You could say, hey, let's test the high velocity model. Let's test the you know, online eval followed by inside sales. Let's test the up the middle. Let's see what works. I mean, you iterate and go to market the same way you iterate on product. That's interesting. Yeah, that was an interesting aha for me. Is you sort of iterate and go to market the same way you iterate on product. How do you do that? How do you track? How do you think about? How do you think iteration? about that? Yeah, yeah. So this gets to how do you build your go to market playbook? Mm-hmm. This is a really important concept that, frankly, as a first time product oriented CEO in two thousand nine, I was completely ridiculously wrong about. <laughs> so rewind to like, actually this is probably, yeah, it's like late 2009, we had our first product in the market, winning our first customers, we're trying to sort of unlock growth and find repeatability. And I had hired sort of two sales folks and then hired a VP of sales and my new VP of sales like, all right, we need to build our go-to-market playbook. And in my head, I translated go-to-market playbook to that means a good PowerPoint pitch. Mm, go-to-market pitch sales deck. Decks. Yeah. yeah, I need a good pitch deck. Yeah. And I was like, now in the rearview mirror, I realized like, how ridiculously wrong and naive and narrow-minded that view was. And so if you think about the go-to-market playbook, it's how do you repeatably find and win customers over and over again? Like when you first find them, what do you do? What's like just what's that journey the customer goes on, and you have to walk them through from the very first time you find them and connect with them all the way to the way you make the decision. It's not, hey, I've got a good PowerPoint presentation, right? <laughs> right. PowerPoint presentation might show up somewhere in there, but it's like a bullet, like on a list somewhere. So, how did we sort of figure that out? And ours kind of started by accident on a guy named Mike Lee's whiteboard. Okay. So in the very beginning of finding go-to-market repeatability and finding go-to-market fit, one of the problems is founders can't find go-to-market fit. Founders cannot find go-to-market repeatability because inherently the founder selling process is not repeatable. Founders have magic pixie dust. You can get meetings that nobody else can get. You can say things in meetings nobody else can say. You can be like, here's the 27 things we could do. You can commit to stuff in meetings. Like, it's totally not repeatable. Yeah. Right? And so, ironically, finding repeatable sales motion, if the founder's trying to do it, you're getting all sorts of false signals. So what's the answer to that? So I actually recommend that you need to hire sort of more like a Davy Crockett kind of couple early sales reps or marketing people to kind of find the path through the woods and iterate and try stuff and try this, try this problem, try this message, sort of iterate on it. And one of our Davy Crockett... What are the skill sets of a Davy Crockett? How do you find what... Yeah, so Mark Leslie also, interestingly, has a 
thing you wrote called the Renaissance sales rep, sort of mm. similar thing. I call them Davy Crockett because I think the metaphor of finding the path through the woods is yeah, sure. kind of descriptive. So they tend to be like 60% sales, like picking up the phone, go talk to people, pitch, and like 20% product marketing and 20% product management. Okay. Like they tend to have a little bit of marketing bones in them and they also have a little bit of product bones in them because they go meet with customers and they try things. Try this, try that. What about this problem? What about that problem? Hey, if we can't help you with that, what about that? Like they're iterating, they're testing things, and they're kind of making stuff up, and that's okay. And but this kind of sounds like a founder. <laughs> yes, but it's a normal salesperson. Right. Exactly. right. That's that's actually the interesting thing. It's like these people are potentially good founders at some point. They kind of have that, you know, a little bit of that discover the problem. They've got the explorer yeah. gene in them. But they're, and, uh, but they're not the founders, really important in, in this case. Yeah, right? typically a product-led founder built the product with the vision. Blah, right. Blah, blah, right. So one of our early David Crockett's was a guy named Mike Lee. Mike had a whiteboard in his office that, you know, picture this. He's just trying to get customers to keep talking to us, right? So he had this list on the whiteboard that on one side was like the stuff that seemed to work to get people to keep talking to us and stuff on the other side that was like, I thought this was going to work, but it wasn't going to work. And he just did it for himself. Right, because that's what he's trying to do. He's just trying to figure things out. What was interesting is then the rest of us started to pay attention to Mike's whiteboard. Wait a minute, that worked. That's interesting. What do you mean that didn't work? We worked really hard on that. We're offended that that didn't work. <laughs> right. So that became sort of the real world test chamber for what we thought was going to get customers to keep talking to us. Which in some ways is the very early part of building your go to market playbook. From how do you? Get a customer to talk to you once, talk to you twice, talk to you three times, engage, do an eval, spend time with you. Like just okay. Those. So the the things that showed up on his, you know, people will talk about this. They're these, willing to spend more time yeah. talking to you, right? Because so, if customers are willing to spend more time with you, it's at least a signal that you're onto something. Yeah, it's important. So like iPhones was on the. Uh, they, they they will talk more about iPhones. Yeah, they're like, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Okay. And but, um, but like you know some. Uh, Windows Phone, they were like deaf to, right? Yeah, it just it was less interesting, right? Sure. Like, ah, yeah. you know. And so like, there's other things that we thought were going to be important that weren't too, right? And you're trying to basically sound like you're kind of building this catalog of different things that you can then needs and problems and stories and who they're talking to, and it just it's like iterating on who the ideal customer is. How do you get their attention? What do you do in a first meeting? What happens in a second meeting? How do you get them to an eval? And an eval, what are they doing? Like, you know, you're basically sort of starting to build like this customer journey. And so, what does a go-to-market playbook look like? So, you sort of a vision across the top. You have like the steps in the customer journey. Mm -hmm. Like, and you know, like if it's a heavyweight sales model, it might be like, hey, you have a you know, marketing does lead gen qualification, hand it off to inside sales. You have a first meeting, you have a second meeting, you have an evaluation, you have a decision meeting, you have a win, they have onboarding, right? Whatever, like five, six steps, right? Sure. And under each one of those, you sort of have what are people doing and saying in each stage. Or if it's a marketing-led sales model, you got like, okay, messages with SEO, SEM, how are you getting people on the landing mm. page? What's some online video content that you're doing for education to get people more engaged? How are you nurturing them? Oh, you get them to an eval, great. Eval, you get eval onboarding. Like, you could start to figure out like this, building this musculature for what's step one, what's step two, what's step three, what's step four, what's step five on the customer journey, and what are people doing and saying at each stage? Like, is what becomes your go-to-market playbook. And 
I had one company I was working with that they showed me their go-to-market playbook, and it was like 50 pages. Oh. And I'm like, that's not a go-to-market playbook. That's a brain dump. Yeah. Right, of everything you've ever learned. A go-to-market playbook, like ours fit on one page. It was like one PowerPoint slide. Maybe two, but like it's the distillation of it down to sort of the essence of what's the customer journey, what are people doing and saying at each stage, and like what's the rest of the company doing to be able to support each one of those stages. And how you sort of figure this out is as you're in your early customer engagements, like pay attention to not just your wins, pay attention to the losses. Why'd you lose? Why did a deal go fast? Why did it go slow? Why did a deal disappear? You know, why did it get big? Why did it get small? Like those are like the universe sort of giving you feedback about what's working and what's not working to help sort of build this go-to-market playbook. And you'll discover things in there that become part of your go-to-market motion. And there's something I call the wows, which is, you know, when you're in a customer meeting, and I'm sort of like, you know, you've been through this and anybody who's tried to sell new products, you go sit down with a meeting and a customer and you go, here, blah, 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 you're going through your pitch. And there's something you talk about where all of a sudden the, the prospect's body language changes mm-hmm. and they kind of stand up or they lean in, they're like, wait, wait, tell me more. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That's a clue that you're onto like a wow, which is something that got their attention that makes them want to spend more time with you. Like, those are really important. Mm. To find those in your early part of your go-to-market playbook, like what are the things that cost customers go? Wow, I want to spend more time with you. Mm. And sometimes there's one. Sometimes you can find two. Sometimes you can find three. But the trick is, and it's funny, as a product-centric founding CEO, like you always sort of think you know what the wows are. Sure. Or your product team thinks they know what the wows are. Your engineering team thinks they know what the wows are. The funny thing is, you don't get to decide. I didn't get to decide. Your customers decide. <laughs> yeah. And the weird thing is sometimes the wows are not what you thought they were. You, of course, intuitively imagine it to be the thing you work the hardest on mm-hmm. and that you're most proud of. It's the most Turns complex out, engineering yeah, problem in the background. Yeah, yeah, super exciting. Super There's a hard. DAG We're, back there that's deciding what's happening. And, yeah, yeah, we have this really awesome big giant policy engine that helps you do blah, 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 yeah. blah. And often it's something that could be even smaller than you thought, but customers go, wait a minute. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So keep your eyes open for those. And the customer gets to decide the wow, not you. And be prepared to be a little offended because sometimes it might be something small. <laughs> but that's okay. I'll give you an example. So for us, one of the wows in the early days was when we were pioneering Bring Your Own Device, we sort of invented this concept called Selective Wipe. Mm. Right. So we would walk in and be like, hey, we have this product that helps provide security and management for any mobile operating system to help you embrace mobile as a first-class citizen. We were really excited about our big, giant security and policy engine. And the customer would be like, we'd show them this ability to wipe your work stuff but leave your pictures and music alone. They'd be like, wow, <laughs> show me more, <laughs> right? And it was a cool feature, yeah, but it wasn't that hard to build. Yeah. And it sort of felt like we're like, really? Is that what it is? And ironically, we actually buried the feature down in our UI because it was like logically located where it's supposed to be, but like we kind of buried the sure, like an employee right? offboarding, you know, yeah, it's exactly. Like, you know, it was yeah. sort of down there, deprovision that user, and then yeah, exactly. Wipe it was like, oh wait, yeah. that's actually like a wow feature, yeah, right. Yeah, the funny thing is, at the time, most customers didn't even have BYOD, right? So, like, if we had measured that feature on usage, yeah, we would have gotten a totally false signal. 
That was a super important feature to get customers to keep talking to us, engage with us, and keep moving. That was definitely a wow. But if we measured it on usage, then we've gotten a totally false signal. Mm. And I'll give you like a second wow. And again, this was something that came from meetings with customers. Well, but, so that last one, do you think it's because that's where the market was eventually, I mean, we have hindsight now, so eventually everyone was going to BYOD and that would become a thing that would enable BYOD because now you could selectively wipe. And so is I that think there like, was an element of being ahead of the curve. Yeah. Right. So sometimes you're ahead of the curve, like that's a capability that gets people to want to spend time with you, engage with you, and it's part of the reason they buy your product, but maybe they're just not going to use it yet. Sure. Interestingly, the second wow for us had very similar characteristics, which was we invented a concept called the Enterprise App Store. Hmm. Everyone's used to the App Store and sort of the consumer world. We built the first Enterprise App Store for companies to be able to deliver apps to their employees' phones. Like internally developed Internal, apps? Yeah, internally developed apps for App Store. Very cool. And it was like, it was a killer demo. Customers were like, Wow. The funny thing is, no customers had any apps. <laughs> right? yeah. But again, like if we had measured that based on usage. But everybody wanted an app. They wanted an app. So it was, it was like, aspirational. It was, yeah. Oh, I want to right? build, we want to have an app that's cool. And they, everybody has an app idea. We're going to have one some way or yeah. someday, right? You know, every IT guy's got some app idea. They're going to app this and there's an app for that. So, right. yeah. Right. I mean, and there are definitely capabilities, you know, as part of the go to market playbook that we'd show and the competitive evaluations, things like that, that were much more usage based. But, you know, the thing I think on this is there are certain things where the customer's body language change, where they're going to want to spend more time with you. They get to decide what those are. Build those into your go-to-market playbook. Draw a big circle around them. Sometimes you have to do, like, redesign on your product to sort of elevate the wows. And uh, it's okay if it doesn't get used. Yeah, so this is actually this is, is interesting, because the wows, like, should you use that as signal for, like, okay, let's build more features around Selective Wipe and make this a really big part of our product set? Or should you be like, okay, it's a, it gets everyone to go, wow, but like the real value is in the, all the other stuff we do? I think the answer is sort of it depends. Okay. In some cases, the wows may just stay sort of isolated little wows that just are exciting things mm-hmm. that get people to keep talking to you. Sometimes it's a precursor of things to come mm. that becomes sort of a end-to-end set of capabilities that customers use over time, and it's just early. Uh, I've seen both. Okay, so... You know, as you're getting that feedback, right? Someone's like, "There's like, wow, that's really amazing," but they're not using it today. Like, you sort of just like keep it on the radar as a thing. You're like, "Look, people still really like this. Let's like let's make sure we don't ignore it. Let's put it up higher in the product so it's more exposed." And then if maybe as people start using it more, we start to dig into, you know, actually building features around it. Yeah, I think you could see that. Like as it starts to get really adopted, then you start really building the workflows around it and expanding okay. it. I think, you know, particularly if you look at a go-to-market playbook where you know you're driving customers through nurturing to online demos and self-driven evals, like being able to have the customer to be able to discover the things that they go wow and they want to spend more time in your demo, the things that keep going, like you know. Especially in a self-driven demo and eval kind of world, you have to be super deliberate about what these wows are. And then that gets to the next part of the go-to-market playbook, which is, okay, once you get the customer sort of engaged, how do you get them across the line? And you know, in many cases, that involves an evaluation, a POC, things like that. And being really deliberate about what that part of the experience looks like and what are the supporting tools and things you need to be able to deliver to your go-to-market team to be able to do that? I'll give you an example. So for us, when customers would go into an eval mode, like we would drive customers to eval. Like, hey, Mr. Customer, because that's a sign like it's a real deal. 
They're willing to spend time with you. Maybe they're bringing in competitors. Like, it's go time, mm-hmm. right? And you have to be able to build a repeatable process for evaluations. Now, what's funny is in the early days of markets, customers often don't know how to evaluate products. Sure. Right? They just give themselves a left-to-right UI tour through your product, and you sort of like a random walk in the woods. So the one thing we realized, like, oh, wait, we get to actually kind of tell the customer what to do yeah. to how to evaluate the product, which is an awesome place to be. So we ended up creating this Excel spreadsheet that basically was like, here's the 10 things you go test in an evaluation, Mr. Customer. And if they turn all are green, of course you buy, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you get to set the table. Yeah. Like, yeah. And you'd be surprised in a lot of cases, particularly in newer category creations, customers don't know how to evaluate the products. You get to set the table for how evaluations happen. The second thing is that sometimes you can stick stuff in there that becomes competitive traps. Mm-hmm. Which is, if you think about like your go-to-market playbook, there's often like an evaluation guide or a self-driven demo or a self-driven eval. Like, get really prescriptive about that, and you're going to put stuff in there that, of course, if you get to these ten things and they all turn green, you should buy. But you can also stick sort of second-order things in there. This is one of the things I learned was you can stick sort of second-order capabilities or tests in there that aren't actually that important in the grand scheme of things, but you know your competitors are going to be pissed about mm-hmm. because. The customer's going to ask your competitor about X or Y, and they're going to be like, oh, right? And they're going to try and do the same thing to you, Mm -hmm. right? So this is where sort of the hand-to-hand combat happens in the go-to-market playbook is sort of in this eval POC stage. Like, you know, how do you define the decision criteria? How do you set the table for the customer? And how do you lay traps? Yeah. And so, you know, like that... That's that's a really important part of the the go to market right is understanding if you're early in a market you can set the sort of decision criteria yeah the, customers, the yeah. expectations right yeah. and then you can deliver that to your customers and then just producing it as an asset right like hey we distribute this along you know take a look and it became part of your core training for your sales team your go to market teams or for your marketing team to build the online evals like you have to get really prescriptive about it and it becomes very cross functional. Right, it's your product team, your marketing team, your sales engineers. Like this is where sort of the collective IQ of the company, in many ways, about what's winning and losing deals. Like this is like the sharp edge of the sword Mm -hmm. on the ground inside customers, deal by deal by deal by deal. So yes, you have to get really deliberate about it. And there's a feedback loop there. Like as the market evolves, you're like, oh, there's something new we're seeing in the market. We got to change this part of the go-to-market playbook, and then you got to get everybody on board with changing it. So it's the go-to-market playbook becomes like the core operating system for your whole go-to-market motion. It becomes like muscles, and that was the thing that was amazing. Is when you get the go-to-market playbook right, and you get the urgency and the sales model defined. Like the way you know is you just start to feel the momentum. You put more in, you get more out. You start to feel the momentum, and you can hire new salespeople, they know what to do to win deals. You add channels, you give them the playback, here's how you win deals. You add somebody new in marketing, here's what we do. Which is like as you start to get that machinery going and that playbook going, like it's magic because you start to feel the momentum and it becomes like muscle memory and just chuka 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 chuka. Now, there's an interesting sort of side story to this is that over time you need to evolve and change your go-to-market playbook. Right, I was thinking about that because markets change, other things happen. Right? Or you add like a major new product capability. Sure. So, ironically, the power of getting go to market fit and your go to market playbook right is the repeatability of it. 
The challenge of it is when you need to change it, you have to like uh, rewire okay. muscle memory yeah. that's like gotten built into your team where it's almost subconscious. So like making changes to your go-to-market playbook and the way your team goes to market is not that easy. Right. We got an interesting story there where like 2012 Mobile Iron, we had uh, we'd probably 1,000 customers at this point. So we really had a go-to-market playbook cooking. Yeah, sure. And we went from selling one product to selling a platform with three different products and an ecosystem. And that was a fundamental change to our go-to-market playbook, and I totally underestimated that. So we basically created a pitch, rolled out some training, went through it. Training it, internal, like training internal, teams, like sales yeah, teams, and like pitch. new website, new pitch, new demos, yeah. stuff like that. So you had all the collateral, all the collateral. So, we did a bunch yeah. of training, yeah, and then sixty days later, everybody just kind of went back to doing what they were doing before, mm. and it was frustrating. And I think changing your go-to-market playbook, it's sort of like you know unlearning like major muscle memory and relearning muscle memory kind of takes a little bit of shock and energy to be able to do it. Sure. So I was frustrated and you know the team and I were sort of struggling with what to do. We're like, all right, should we just repeat what we did before and just do it again? Uh, we decided to sort of do more of a shock therapy. So we basically made every single sales rep and every single sales engineer present the new pitch to me as CEO one-on-one and get graded. As if you were a customer. As if I was a customer. Yeah. And uh, it was a, like it absorbed like two weeks of my time. Yeah. Uh, which you could argue maybe wasn't that efficient. But what happened was it sent a signal like, hey, this is really important. Please spend time on this. And we got a chance to see who was really good and who wasn't as good at sort of making the change. And that level of sort of intensity around rewiring your go-to-market playbook is almost what's required. And I think you see a lot of companies stumble at this when they go from selling a single product to multi-products or they've got a major shift in what they're doing. They just kind of stuff it through the go-to-market playbook that they built that was working. Right. And they're like, it doesn't work. And it's hard. So, you know, it took us like real shock therapy kind of for ourselves to rewire our go-to-market playbook. Now, fast forward like 90 days after that, we started cranking and fast forward a year, like 60% of our sales came off the new products and new platform capabilities that came out of changing that go-to-market playbook. And I'm guessing like that process where you made everybody pitch you, like there was probably a bunch of feedback that happened and I'm guessing some iteration on, yeah. yeah, because they're like, well, here's why I don't do it that way and here, you know, and so, is that right? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, in many ways, like when we did the rollout number one, we had a lot of feedback that came in sort of as part of rollout number one. And then there was a sort of painful relapse period. <laughs> and then we did sort of the more intense sort of shock therapy to rewire, you know, how we went to market. And there's a lot of feedback. I mean, I learned a lot from listening to everybody sort of tell the story, be like, oh, that didn't work very well, or oh, that was really good. And actually, there's a great example where there's like one woman who is a, a channel sales rep in Europe who absolutely just crushed the new story and was like better than all of us. It was like, hey, like, keep an eye on her. She should get promoted. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, we're going to adopt some of the things she said. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, as part of that rewiring, you learn. How to get better? I mean, had you like rolled it out to you know a small group of salespeople? Oh no, we went, we data? rolled it out to everybody. You did, you did it all at once. <sighs> okay, yeah. Do you, is that you think that's the right way? Like looking back, or should you have gone a little bit more? Yeah, probably. Maybe should have piloted a little bit more. Yeah, 
I mean, you know, moving fast is what you have to do, right? So well, it's a balance. so I think you know, and it's funny. We I kind of made the same mistake. Remember in the beginning, I sort of said, "Oh, go to market playbook is like having a good PowerPoint pitch," right? I kind of made that same mistake again, where it's like, "Okay, we got a you know broader platform, an ecosystem." I'm like, "Okay, we need a new pitch." Yeah, we rolled out the new pitch, and we're like, "Hmm." That like didn't work. Like, pitch or something, we had right? different yeah. competitors we were competing against. We're now selling. Like, there's different people inside the customer involved. Like, it required sort of a change in thinking. Yeah, I feel like you almost need like a Davy Crockett-ish salesperson on that when you first roll out a new product, uh, right? That's to a kind good of question. Um, yeah, I think there were sort of early adopters in your own team that sort of naturally sort okay. of try and take it, and I think that was, you know, I'm sort of thinking about this on the fly. Because it wasn't just me. It was, I was obviously had a product, had a marketing, everybody sure. had a sales was involved in this. You know, as we're in sort of alpha and beta and sort of all these new capabilities, it was really expanding our product platform. Yeah, there were people who were sort of that, essentially okay. sort of the Davy Crockett's for sort of phase two of the company. Yeah, they were, they went out and, and talked to early customers, came back with early yeah. feedback, feedback in. Yeah, you know, I think there's a macro point here, which is that you know you can be really successful in Act One as a company, and it's hard to be successful just for Act One. I think I underestimated as we were trying to make the transition to Act Two for sort of the next version of what Mobile Iron was going to be, the broader story, the broader platform that drove our growth. I think I underestimated sort of the internal rewiring it took for our go-to-market playbook to be able to like change from Act One to Act Two. And mm-hmm. I think if you look at sort of great companies, very rarely do they become great companies just on Act One. It's usually Act One and Act Two and even Act Three that allow companies to become the hundred million, two hundred million, three hundred million dollar a year really successful businesses. Very rarely is it just sort of whatever the the one thing is that got them off the ground in the beginning. Yeah, you kind of have to reinvent what you're offering. You have to reinvent how you're talking about it. And and one thing we were talking about, you know, before the podcast started is uh, sort of fast moving markets, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, if you think about the mobile ecosystem. Ten years ago, I mean that was that's the epitome of like a really fast it was total chaos. Yeah, total. Yeah, exactly. Right, <laughs> it was total chaos. Yeah, Android and nobody knew, out. Nobody knew how it was going to evolve. Yeah, so I think you have a little bit of a framework for for thinking about this. So I'd love to have you share how to find the market trends that you, if you want to keep calling it correctly the whole time, right? Because calling mobile in two thousand eight was a great call. Like, how did you call in? Yeah, the but mobile two thousand ten right? looked very different than two thousand eight. Mobile yeah. two thousand twelve looked very different than two thousand ten. Yeah, that's a great topic. So, this idea that like for companies to really become successful platform and long term businesses, like there's an Act One, Act Two, Act Three. So as a result, you kind of have to call the ball about what are these evolutions that happen in your market? Because if you're in a fast moving dynamic market, it's going to evolve. And the trick is sort of how do you evolve with it and stay ahead mm-hmm. and in front? And so how do you call the ball? I think one of the backstories from Mobile Iron that I don't think we probably really talked about is that we successfully called the ball like five or six times in a row for how the enterprise mobility market was going to evolve. Like enterprise mobility in 2008 was really different than 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013. Like it was a really fast moving market. And we called the ball right a bunch of times in a row. So, like, part of that was probably luck, to be fair. But one of the things we did that I think really helped, and we just totally stumbled into this, by the way. So, it wasn't like any sort of massive foresight, but 
we started doing this thing we called our market thesis. And just for context, every quarter we'd get together as a team offsite religiously. And I totally recommend that, by the way. Like, And things get really busy. It's going to be hard to do. Do it anyway. How many, like, how many days? At least one day, sometimes two. Cool. Offsite goals, what's working well, what's not going well, how we doing, what are our goals for the next quarter, and what are some big topics to talk about. Like, You just need quality time together as an executive team. And it's hard to do. Like Everybody's going to be really busy, including me, but we just had to be religious about it. And it was really painful sometimes, but I'm really glad we did it. And one of the things we would do at these offsites, not everyone, but probably like every other one, we do this thing called a market thesis, which sounds kind of boring, but turned out to be like really powerful. Basically, what we do is like I'd ask every one of the folks on my leadership team to go spend some time by themselves ahead of the meeting and write down what they think is going to happen in the market over the next 12 months. What's going to happen across customers? What's going to happen across product? What's going to happen across competition? What's going to happen across our ecosystem? And so, so everybody go separately. Yeah, and go, go do, do it this, themselves yeah. ahead of time. Write it down, and we'd create like this four-hour block during the offsite where everybody would basically present their piece to everybody else, like mm-hmm. one slide, right, with these like four sections on it, and everybody present to everybody else. And what ended up happening is sometimes they're all of a sudden, you'd see everybody kind of talking about the same thing, and you're like, okay, wait a minute, that's like a big deal. Everybody's sort of seeing the same signal. Or sometimes you would see something come from one of the folks on the leadership team that nobody else had seen or heard about. We're like, wait a minute, tell us more about that. And all of a sudden, we'd be like, oh my God, that's a really big deal. We got to totally like figure that out or get on that. I think in retrospect, it was a way to really pull out all the conscious and subconscious market signals observations, customer conversations, internal conversations into sort of a way to like share it with everybody and you could start to see the patterns. And a lot of the correct times for us calling the ball about what we needed to do next and sometimes what we didn't need to do next came out of those discussions. And like I said, it's sort of a boring name, market thesis, but I think that collective wisdom and sort of forcing that discussion in an organized way turned out to be one of our secret weapons for calling the ball right a bunch of times in a row. Yeah, I love that. You know, I mean, I'm probably guilty of going down the path of like being a little too top-down or, you know, working with my co-founder, just the two of us behind the, you know, behind a closed door trying to And think then it's through. all on one person to synthesize it. Yeah, exactly, right? And so I think really going to your team, having everyone do this, Letting the like, I mean, one, I think I mean, especially imagine this, like we're now like two, three, four hundred people with like a thousand customers, like it's like and markets moving fast. Yeah, like, being able to sort of synthesize this and figure out what to do was like, I suppose I could have just decided or the product person decide, but like, right. that's, it's probably not going to get to the right answer unless you just are a genius or lucky. Crowdsource it, it's even better, right? You kind of come across these really smart people, who all, and then everyone's more engaged with it because they were they helped build the, 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 the market thesis. So, and then because we were doing this in our offsite. The takeaways from that discussion often was very easy to then turn into goals for the team. Okay, well, as a result, what do we got to do as part of our goal planning for the next six months? Or, oh, crap, we've got an issue we got to resolve. Like, let's figure that out. So it was very tightly tied to the, well, what do we then go do about it? Mm -hmm. Or what do we then not go do about it? Sure. I want to kind of bring it back real quick to to enterprise ready, right? Like, you know, we have these features that we, we talk about, and it's interesting to think about. You know the, the set of common features that you know are never really going to be a wow, probably, yep. right? But where do they fit in in terms of this like company evolution? This you know between 
you know, you're not doing an ideation phase. You're not like, well, we're going to yeah, have the best out of all specific killer features and capabilities that are very specific to your problem, which is why the customers buy your product. Exactly. But then there's a bunch of stuff that's like kind of table stakes. Right. Where do those fall in? Where should you be like thinking about adding those in? And wh- where did you guys add them in at Mobile Iron? Like, how did, maybe that's a good framework, but yeah. So this is actually one of the hardest parts of being the head of product or engineering in a fast-growing technology company is actually sort of making those trade-offs. Mm. And the way it ends up feeling is that very rarely is a customer going to buy your product for one of these enterprise-ready features like reporting or auditing or single sign-on or role-based access control. Like no customer is going to be super excited about buying your product because they have that. It's all about the other stuff. <laughs> right. So in some it's ways, select, it's actually those wipe, things right? yeah. become the reasons why somebody may not buy your product or they may wait. But in the early days of a market and product, like customers are willing to cut you some slack on that stuff. Right. So, you know, it's a tough trade because what ends up happening is you have a limited amount of engineering resources and you're like, all right, do we do A, B, and C to change the market? Do we A, B, and C to to generate new revenue, do A, B, and C to change the customer conversation, do A, B, and C to compete better, or do A, B, and C to do something that nobody's going to talk about, but if we don't do it, maybe they won't buy. Right. right? <laughs> That's how it sort of manifests itself. And it, what ended up happening, and you know, it was sort of came in fits and starts, is that periodically we'd sort of carve off a block of product energy and R&D energy to knock off sort of one of these enterprise features. Like it could be like, your know, role-based access control. You know, but it took us a long time to get to it. Sure. But, you know, like once a year we'd sort of carve off a block to say, all right, let's go knock off one of these things. And it was one of the toughest jobs of being the head of product was sort of balancing when to do that. You know, and some of them probably took us four or five years to get to. Oh wow, really? Yeah. No. And it was interesting is like it's a judgment call about, you know, listening to your customers about what's really going to drive their purchase decision mm-hmm. and then what's really going to drive their adoption. And as long as you're listening to those things and factoring correctly, that'll naturally sort of drive the prioritization of some of the unsexy but important enterprise-ready stuff. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, to your point, I think this is also true. I, I talked to the segment founders. Sometimes there's just so much pool for your product. There's so much urgency that... You can pe- get away with it. Yeah, you just get away Customers with it. Customers are willing to give you a pass for a while. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, our, our thesis is always. Or sometimes it's the size customer you're selling to, too, by the way. If of course. Mid market, get away with it if you're going to sell to Morgan Stanley. Yeah, as soon as you're going into you know, an enterprise and you need these features at some point. The one thing that I always think is a great point, too, to your point, you can get a pass on some of these features. Knowing what they are is really helpful. Being able to talk to them and say, like, yeah, we understand that you need role based access control. Here's why you need it, right? And it's important to us that you be able to do that at some point, right? And right. say, you know, obviously, we think of them. You know, currently, you know, can you work around this in some way for a while before we have to build this in there? And you kind of can get that pass. Four or five years, you know, might be a, a long pass, but you know, that's that's what it takes sometimes. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think because of the speed and urgency around the evolution of the mobile market, there were so many other things changing. Right, iOS came out, then Android came out, and the releases of software every year, and then oh wait, there's apps, there's content, there's entities. The rate of change of the market we were dealing with was absurd. And so just keeping up with the ecosystem mm, changes right. was an enormous amount of energy. And customers actually told us, like, that's the most important part for us. Right. So I think in some ways we probably had a different experience on some companies because of the sheer sort of chaos and rapid evolution of the market. The most important thing to our customers was keep up with that. Yeah. 
because it's just you know oh there's a new OS that's coming out we need to have support for if you it. don't it's support just, it day one like right like that's a real problem yeah and, like, that's like mission critical problem yeah so because of the speed at which anything underneath the hood was moving they were willing to sacrifice in a few of those other yeah, features but, you know I think in some ways we probably waited too long on some of the enterprise ready features so I think you know retrospect there's some that we would probably do differently and yeah. done earlier any in particular yeah. that come to mind. Uh, I think role-based access control took us longer than I think we thought. And um, yeah, my one piece of advice for founders and early product folks thinking about some of these things is some enterprise-ready features have architectural implications, like role-based access control. Right. Some enterprise features like reporting don't. Right. So the ones that have architectural implications, it's important to sort of think about them earlier. Yeah, at least to plan it they out get a harder. bit. They get harder right. as time goes on. Yeah, you end up accruing more technical debt over time as you don't have them because you need to get them in, and it's, yep. it's hard over a bigger code base. Yeah, yeah. Reporting is one of those features though, that ends up sometimes you know helping you sell. Right? Totally. Oh yeah. yeah, reporting is you know many ways how you manifest the value proposition for your product, and you know there's tons of examples where reporting you're like, oh really is that sexy? Well, if you put yourself in the position of your customer, they've got to go to their boss to justify what they're doing. That is often what they show. Second thing that don't underestimate that I've seen a couple times with a couple companies is something that gets generated out of your product and report that gets used by your customer, they send upstream as mm -hmm. part of their operational report. And if you, during a POC, can get one of your prospects to embed some of your report information in something they send up to their boss, the likelihood of them unhooking you <laughs> <laughs> after they've already started to send that information upstream gets lower and lower and lower. So reporting can actually be a very strategic part of getting embedded in your customer's operational workflow. Yeah, that's a great point because then the the whoever they send it up to is going to ask for it again, and they're going to be like, "Well, oh yeah, I decided not to send that to you now because I decided to say no to the product." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, but I want it back. So yeah. like they'll they'll reimplement everything just to get that one report back if their yep. boss needs it, right? Yeah, the trick is sort of knowing. Which ones those really are? I think you can go down a lot of rabbit holes about things you may think are important, but it really comes down to putting yourself in your customer's shoes, talking to them, watching them. What are they really sending upstream to really understand? How do you make them the hero? Right. That usually is what it comes down to: is how do you make your buyer or your decider a hero? Yeah, that's so important. If they can get a promotion based on using your product. And that's part of what reporting does. It helps them give them, you know, present things to the, to up the stream to make them, you know, more appreciate the thing, the, the work they're doing. Totally. And I think uh, every once in a while, you're part of a new category creation or a new problem that gets solved, where your customers end up making their careers or get promoted on the backs of what have they learned how to do with you. And yeah. I think that's actually one of the more satisfying things about when I look back on, you know, our twelve thousand customers at Mobile Iron was that. Mobility was new, and there were a lot of our early customers that got promoted because they became the woman or the man that made mobility happen inside company A, B, or C, mm. right? Or like at Marketo, like there were marketing managers that got promoted to CMO because they were the ones that made marketing analytical. Sure. Right? And in the early days of Cisco and networking, like... The people who made the internet happen inside companies, you know, became the CIO. Yeah. Right. So, you know, don't underestimate the impact 
that you and your product and what you're helping your customers do can have on their careers. And, uh, you know, that's a very sort of profoundly <laughs> satisfying impact you can have not just on sort of your customers' businesses, but, you know, your, your customers' people and their careers. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me, we were, we were talking a little bit before about like, why you should build enterprise software companies, right? And, and, you know, I think a lot of it's because, like, we spend so much time at work, right? You know, and you can really impact people's lives. This is you know, in a really profound way. 40 to 80 hours a week, we're, we're doing these things. So, um, you know, and I, I think you have some perspective on, like, some other reasons why and some opportunities you see changing. I'd love, I'd, you know, I'd love to hear. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's funny. I've been doing enterprise tech since really, well, I guess since 1992. And for a long time, it was sort of considered pretty uncool. Oh, it's so cool like, now. Consumer was like so much cooler. You know, what I love about doing enterprise and sort of B2B stuff is that if you look what's happening right now, like the entire enterprise tech stack is getting reinvented. Like, I mean, obvious stuff like the transition from prem to cloud, right? Uh, but like, that's a huge change. Yeah. Right. The entire app stack is getting transformed from sort of traditional client server to web based models to now container based models. Identity is being completely rethought. You know, Internet of Things is changing sort of how people think about connectivity. Like, just there's so many things that are just in the process of getting completely reinvented. Then you layer on things like AI and ML. Mm. So, you know, it's what a multi-trillion-dollar industry, where a huge chunk of it's actually getting reinvented over the next ten years, and I think that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a great opportunity to build so many great businesses in there, and you know, really make a difference. You know, in our customers' businesses, and you know, like you said, we all spend a big chunk of our life at work. So, you know, if we can help make those businesses and the people inside those companies' jobs a little easier, a little better, more productive, more effective. That's adding value to the world. I love it. And Bob, you know, I know that you're sort of working on your your next book, right? Which yes. is about change the, or be changed. Yeah, the evolution, you know, in the role of the CEO. I'd love to just close out by letting you kind of like talk for a few yeah, minutes about what 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 does that mean to you, and tell us about the thesis behind it. You know, like frustration is often the mother of inspiration. Uh, one of the things that I think for enterprise entrepreneurs, just entrepreneurs everywhere, that is hard is as your company changes and grows, your job changes, and therefore you have to change. Or, frankly, you get changed. <laughs> and so I think there's like this silent struggle that we all face continuously, which is how do we keep up with our company? And you know, for me, sort of how that felt was you know, over the course of five years, you know, we went from you know, me and like 20 other people kind of trying to build a product that people cared about to 500, 600 people doing $100 million a year thinking about going public. Like, that was a crazy five years. And over that period of time, I think one of the things I didn't appreciate is that as the company changed, my CEO job changed. And for my leaders, their job changed. And for their teams, their job changed. And for my board, their jobs changed. I don't think we spend enough time sort of, or there's not a lot of institutional knowledge passed down about how as companies changes, people's jobs change and they have to change themselves. It sort of gets thrown around in these memes like, go scale. It's like, what does that mean? Nobody knows what to do with that. So my core lesson on this was unlearning, which is the irony is the things that I think, you know, help make me successful is like, you know, the zero to 50 person CEO trying to find product market fit kind of got in my way becoming the CEO of the whole company, trying to unlock growth, and then 
things that may be successful there got in my way at the next level. And so we spend a lot of time talking about what we need to learn, and I think that's important, but I don't think we spend enough time talking about what we need to unlearn. And like for me as CEO, like the first CEO job felt kind of like Captain America or Wonder Woman with the platoon in the woods. It's like you're throwing punches, digging ditches, getting dirty. Like it's a blast. Right? But then the second CEO job was more like the Avengers, where it's like you have to hire a band of superheroes, each of which who has a better superpower than you. Mm. And you have to let go, otherwise they're not going to come work for you, they're going to quit. And you're hiring somebody that's better at sales than you and marketing than you and product than you and sales than you. Of course, that's the right answer. But what's the first thing they do when they come in? They look at all the stuff you've worked so hard to build and be like, that stinks! <laughs> yeah. Right? So this change from being sort of the CEO in the platoon of the woods, Captain America, Wonder Woman to the Avengers is a hard transition. Like the things that actually make you successful being the jack of all trades, you have to unlearn because you got to let go and let your team do it. And then at about 400 people, the CEO job changed again to be more like Professor X, Professor Xavier and the X-Men, where you're like the dean of a university. And your teachers or your warriors bringing up the next generation. And I had to do a lot fewer things, but for a lot more people. And I had to repeat myself over and over and over and over hmm. and over and over and over again, which drove me absolutely bananas. Like I really struggled with that transition. And I think it's because in sort of the Avenger stage, I was like, well, we talked about this. We decided, move on. But the job when you're 500 people as CEO is part of your job is to be a signal generator, to keep everybody aligned on the mission and the goals and doing it. Guess what? That takes repetition. So suck it up, Bob. That's actually part of the job. But I kind of got in my own way and was like judging myself saying that's non-value-added work because I was applying sort of my filter and my value-added equation that I had sort of developed in sort of the middle phase of like the Avengers to the Professor Xavier phase, and I had to unlearn that. And I think, you know, this applies to every leader, right? Sales leaders go from Davy Crockett to more like Braveheart mm -hmm. to more like Eisenhower, you know, going from fighting on the battlefield to fighting from the war room. Sure. Every leadership job goes through these sort of same changes where what got you from A to B is going to either hold your back or kill you going from B to C, so you actually have to unlearn. And, uh, you know, on one level, it's a very uncomfortable process. Uh, it triggers a lot of insecurity because you have to kind of let go of the things you're comfortable with and even the way you sort of feel like you add value. So there's these weird emperor has no clothes moments. But it's also sort of a spectacular personal growth opportunity and learning opportunity that, at least for me, I think kind of made me a better person, actually. Hmm. You know, it's sort of like those big, gnarly things in life, like having kids, right? It's sort of illogical. It's hard. You don't get much sleep. It's kind of messy. But on the other side, it's sort of like, you know, I'm a better person for it. Like, That's cool. You know, going through these same types of things professionally, I think, has the same type of impact. But it uh, doesn't mean it's easy. So uh, that's what book two is about. It's called Change or Be Changed. It's orderable on Amazon now. And the theme is unlearning. Cool. That's uh, I love that topic. It's I feel like we fill our lives with you know podcasts and YouTube videos and books we're reading and everything else to try to constantly add more information, right? And it's hard to, you're right, you rarely think about like what do you need to unlearn and stop doing and do differently in order to advance, right? Because you can't keep everything in your mind all the time mm -hmm. and you sort of have to make space for new. So And new behaviors, new knowledge and means sort of not doing things the way you used to do them and... It's hard. It's much more 
counterintuitive and sort of insecurity generating that I think I thought going into it. Because you're like, well, I'll just keep doing the same things that have made me successful. I'll just totally, keep going. which is natural reflex, yeah. particularly under duress, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, who has duress? Right? No, yeah, yeah, exactly. Founders? No. 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 Well, the, uh, that's sort of the funny thing. The book series we called Survival to Thrival. Right. Because in the beginning, like starting companies sort of where you guys are, right? It's like your main mission is just don't die. Right, always. Right. But then at some point, when you find go-to-market fit and start to unlock this repeatable growth, then it becomes about how do you win? Mm. And ironically, the very things that you do in the don't die phase now kind of get in your way when you're like, how do we win phase? And yes, we do know thrival is not a real word. <laughs> That's a great word. <laughs> we'll get it in there eventually. It's phonetically consistent, if not uh, grammatically correct. It's perfect. <laughs> Bob, thank you so much. I, I really you, appreciate all your time. This is amazing. I'm very excited uh, to check out the new book and, and hopefully everyone will, will read the first book as well. So. Yeah, and best of luck to all the uh, entrepreneurs and folks out there doing the hard work. Sometimes it's lonely, but uh, you're not alone. We've all been through it, and we'll all continue to go through it as part of the journey. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about Enterprise Features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.